It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 736 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. As always, I have another great episode lined up for you today. Joining me as my guest on this week's Accelerate is Mercy Bell. Mercy is a principal at Dogpatch Advisors. Now, in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about new business development using what Mercy calls intentional outbound, which is a way for outbound reps to creatively form human connections with their buyers. We'll also be talking with Mercy about the unusual path she herself has followed to build her sales career. So in this conversation today, Mercy and I dive into why the whole B2B sales profession is in need, maybe dire need, of greater diversity. And, and of course, greater diversity from the way the composition of the sales teams, but also diversity in terms of incorporating diverse points of view that come from having greater diversity among our sales profession and fresh perspectives. I mean, if you spent any time at all on LinkedIn following sales, thought leaders, you'll know exactly what we're talking about there. We'll talk about Mercy's unique path into sales from working in a call center in college, trying to raise wealthy money from wealthy alumni. Uh, we'll talk about why creativity is so important in sales. And this is a favorite topic of mine. We've talked about it many times on the show. And Mercy's going to share how customers' first impression of you really speaks to your creativity or your lack thereof. And we'll get into how sales managers can encourage this creativity in their sales reps and help their reps learn how to improvise within their structured sales process to improve their performance. We'll get into that and much, much more. But before we get to Mercy, I want to talk with you about VanillaSoft. VanillaSoft is the industry's leading sales engagement platform, but most people simply refer to it as the solution. It's the solution to ensure sales development reps make the right number of attempts for every lead. It's the solution to ensure sales development reps use more than just email, that they consistently use LinkedIn and maybe even the dreaded telephone as part of their sales playbook. It's the solution to serve the sales development rep the next best lead over and over again so they hit their numbers. The solution starts with the right sales cadence, and that's why you need to check out VanillaSoft's Guide to Sales Cadences. It's titled Sales Cadences, What Works, What Doesn't, and why you're frustrated. And you can get your free copy right now at VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul. That's me. So it's VanillaSoft.com forward slash Andy Paul to get your copy of Sales Cadences, What Works, What Doesn't, and Why You're Frustrated. All right, let's jump into it. Mercy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. Glad to be here. Well, great. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm always excited to talk to... Uh, new young voices in sales, and uh, it's not the sole purpose for having you here, but certainly after we met, it became clear that we wanted to record something together, is because I think it's so important. Is I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, it sounds funny coming from me, but I sort of despair when I, uh, you know, read new sales books. I read dozens of sales books every year, uh, oftentimes in preparation for people on the show. And the irony is, is there's very few that have anything unique to say that are being written by people under the age of 40. Mm. And I just want to hear your take on that. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, old white guys and old white women writing these books. Um, 
Yeah, you know, there's an echo chamber for sure. And it's probably true for all of business, but we see it particularly for B2B tech and for sales. Yeah, that there's a certain age you must be to earn the right to speak, uh, maybe a certain background, and certainly visually it looks somewhat homogenous. Um, <laughs> which is on LinkedIn too. There's definitely an echo chamber on there. Um, definitely men over a certain age with a certain level of experience. Right. So for yourself as a young woman of color in B2B sales, which is fairly unusual, um, what's that feel like? <laughs> you know, as, as, you're, as you're trying to, trying to learn, I mean, obviously there's certain things that are common across the board, but what's it, what do you sort of see as, you know, you're saying, okay, I, I want to learn, I want to grow, you're ambitious, you've done great so far, but I know you're looking to continue to grow. What do you look for as resources to help you do that? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting perspective I have now. So I'm 29. As you mentioned, I'm a woman of color. Um, and it's really interesting to have had a full decade now in sales and to have experienced sort of the advantages and potentially some of the pitfalls of sort of carrying that identity into every sales conversation, into every job I've had. Um, working now as an analyst and advisor with Dogpatch, I don't experience it the same way as I did as a rep. But people would often be confused as to why I was doing so well. Um, you know, I have this memory. Were they confused about why you're doing it at all? I mean, because you know, first of all, women, women in sales is not a, a huge population. Women in tech sales is a smaller population. Um, yeah. Even people of color, let alone women of color in sales and the tech field, also not a big population. Well, it's an interesting. Visually, of course, I was an outlier, but my performance was also a little unusual. So I had graduated from college and gone to a startup as a second hire. And by the time I was 23, I'd had a $3.7 million year in enterprise sales. Mm-hmm. Me, coming from a background where I'm the first to graduate high school, college, first person to actually have a desk job. Um, it's a really interesting thing that happened when my performance started to show up is when I started to get a lot of questions about how did I come to be here and why was I so good? I didn't even know what a red line is when I went in for my first negotiation, Mm -hmm. Capital One. I hadn't even heard the term. There was so little exposure in my home life growing up in the middle of a city with a single mom. Like No one knew how business was done. And I didn't have the lexicon, the vocabulary to even describe what I was doing. I was just doing what I knew to be... uh, successful in my like human experience right um well what were those things that you thought so you had sort of unique experience compared to most people in college in that you worked in a call center for your university you and i share the same alma mater um they go stanford right and um you were doing fundraising and that's certainly this was a new development after I was there, where they have this formal call center and list students to to work it. So, did you work as a uh, you had like a you got paid? I take it right. Yes, and the reason for it, like talk about where some of the best salespeople come from. It's often um, individuals who've had the experience of like truly being hungry or not having resources. I worked in the call center because I had to. I needed some way to pay for books, which I couldn't believe the price of. <laughs> I needed somewhere where I felt like I was able to um, maintain some level of of success. And to me, it was it was a little materially driven at the time. Well, sure. I so, mean, 
<laughs> school. You yeah. want to be able to go out with friends. You want to be able to have certain basic things, books, for instance. And I know that there's all the resale markets that were have sprung up. But I also know that they discourage, discourage those as well by changing the textbooks every year and so on, right? Exactly. So here I am. It's 2008, the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And I'm in charge of calling New York, Wall Street is my territory. Stanford my- graduates in New York and Wall Street. Okay, yeah. yeah. Of which I'm sure there are many. Of which there are many who had given like $10,000 or more the previous year. But I'm also calling Lehman Brothers, right? I'm calling people who have just lost their jobs, lost everything in the last three weeks. And I'm calling to ask them to renew their gift. And that experience, the type of no and rejection I received in that um, particular workplace, and I worked there for all four years of college, let's Mm -hmm. be clear. Um, By the time I came out of college, I was more prepared, though I had no experience on my resume, nothing to tell anybody I knew how to do sales, quote unquote, but I'd really experienced... Other than the fact you had just done it for four years. Exactly. And I think that what's really interesting about that call center, even though Stanford's very prestigious... Um, It was all of us first-generation college students, all of us who were on scholarship trying to make that little extra bit of money. Mm -hmm. That's probably where a lot of the talent lies. Like outside of this traditional competitive athlete profile is just the young person who is hungry, who has had to explain themselves again and again on the phone or in life. Mm -hmm. Those are people of color. Those are people who come from, yeah, disadvantaged, you could say, or maybe it's an advantage to have um, not had resources or had to be creative about how we make money or um, make a living. Yeah. Well, I think that, and this is, is it's a universal experience that, that we go through life answering the question that people ask of us all the time, which is why you, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so, but how we answer it perhaps is different, but getting that experience early on in order to, to do that as you had to do. So what, what was that like? What, what did you learn about how to answer that question? Well, what's really powerful, and this is something we see all the time when we're working with the best reps at Dogpatch, is that there is a in-the-moment creative decision. There's a decision tree that happens inside of a great rep's brain, which is who am I talking to? And what is the why me for this specific person, for this specific context and company? Like, how do I best position myself, or obviously it's usually a software, you know, or some type of technology. So, you know, to sort of answer your question directly, um, I have been doing this why me question my whole life. I mean, my biological mm-hmm. mother is white and I'm of course brown skinned. Mm-hmm. So my first memory is literally being a young kid next to my mom and people saying, where's your parents? Right. So this constant habitual explanation of self which is unique to almost, I can't speak for people of color generally, but in professional environments, we're often asked, oh, where'd you, yeah, how'd you come to be here? I mean, that is a constant why me exercise that helps when I'm in a sales conversation. Yeah. And so when you're asked that question, do you feel like it's uh, a sincere interest or, uh, you know, what do you think are the motivations necessarily for that question? You know, I've given up on trying to understand the motivations of individuals when they ask questions like that. I end up spending more time with myself thinking about why me, right? So I'm so confident and sure and certain of my, that I'm okay to be there. Mm -hmm. That when people ask it, I just answer the question flat and straight. Right. 
Um, but I, I've given up on that process of, I wonder what they meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think back to, to well, predecessors even. I, I remember my, my sister, her first job out of college, she went to work for John Deere and mm. knew nothing about tractors, <laughs> agriculture equipment, anything. And they shipped her off to this remote location in North Dakota where her job was to be the factory rep for dealerships. Um, and you couldn't have asked for yeah, you know, somebody that's more out of water, perhaps unless <laughs> perhaps you had been there yourself, but it's it's like yeah, she was completely always fending off that that question, right? Is why are you doing this? Um and it's like it's things most of us don't really have to deal with in the work environment, which is, you know, why why are you doing this? You know, why where'd you come from? Pretty straightforward. Yeah, you know, I, when I think back in my career, I would sometimes put my personality first. But what actually would end up lending itself to the most success when I was selling would be to actually have the company almost as this, I can't say it's a mask, but the technology I was selling, letting that be the first experience. So really getting creative about, okay, how am I going to describe and position? What are the different data sets I'm going to put together in this email and craft this opening hook that blows mm-hmm. them away? And then let my identity be second. In most cases, it's an advantage to visually look different than most reps, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more memorable for that reason. Right. Young, black, female. These are three qualities that ideally are setting me apart. Let it be positive. But I do find like... Uh, now working as in this sort of advisory um, world where we're still coaching and training a bit, I'm always telling reps, like, the first thing is what you write. It's not you yet. It's not quite you yet. That first sentence, right, what we write there ends up being our first experience with the prospect. It's not even with us, although we are very important as individuals. Well, but if it's a personal personal email, assuming it's not a, you know, masked email is it is about you though still even that first sentence yeah i mean i can see it both ways right i mean our face on a professional one-off email right let's say it's a cold outbound Mm -hmm. our face is on that profile right right next to our name or Mm -hmm. or signature and i would hope though it may not always be true that the quality and the content of that message is going to have more resonance with the prospect than how I look. That is, that's still my belief, whether that's naive, it might be, but I still tell reps that that is their first impression. That is probably where their personality can be infused. Sure. But what they say and the quality and the relevance of that message is going to be the most important thing for them. And that's within their control that no one can control. Absolutely. The the other elements. Yeah. Right. And just so we're clear, I mean, I was saying that, that is first perception of a person could come from that email. I mean, it's, it's, there's less emphasis on writing skills these days. And I think that you've raised a really important point because I think there should be more because I think we've reached the sort of inflection point and it's not just in email. You even see it in online media where there's such an urgency to get a story out that they don't do any but rudimentary Editing and yeah, 
I'm not horribly persnickety about these things, but you know, when I'm reading something a journalist writes and there's multiple spelling errors in a story or grammatical errors, it's like, well, if I were the journalist, I know I was on deadline and wanted to get that in, but I wouldn't want that to go out under my byline with all those errors in it. Um, and so similar true, I see this with, because I purposely sign up for <laughs> way too many lists just so I can get the emails to see what, what people are doing. And still, the attention to that level of detail, not just what you're saying, but how you say it, how it's presented on the page, all that, not enough attention to that. Yeah, and I, I can't speak for every single young sales professional of colors thinking about going into sales, that they're all as image conscious, but I can speak for myself that feeling the weight and the pressure of possibly being, um, I mean, at the mercy of the prospect's opinion mm-hmm. of who I am based on how I look, mm-hmm. there was a lot of extra time spent on the details. And one element is like, there should be no errors. But what we see often is like the most important thing in outbound is just that creativity, that willingness to think outside of the template and the box, but what this email should look like, drawing on our own experiences mm-hmm. or Understandings of human psychology and then our personality too, so that the message reads authentic. And it combined multiple disparate sets of information about the company and the prospect. All that magic happens, like it has to be a creative, a creative process. And unfortunately, um, when companies hire one type of person, one profile, let's mm-hmm. say, you never get that wild experiment on how to write the first email. So in addition to it being maybe error prone, you get that formulaic high first name, we think we can help company name, which isn't doing anybody a favor. Um, well, it's so, yeah. So let's talk about that, the creativity, because I agree. I mean, diversity certainly is a fuel for, for creativity, but even within most organizations uh, that are relying on sort of the proactive outbound, you know, the SDR, predictable revenue model, whatever we want to call it, is um, there is a certain uniformity to those messages that go out. There seems to be pressure on people to stick with the playbook, use the templates, um, even though they quote-unquote have been proven, yet we know win rates in general in, in SaaS are what I consider really low. So it's not like <laughs> it's hugely successful. It's just that it quote unquote works. Right. And so there, it seems like there's this pressure to conform. So how do we, how are you working with companies dog patch or what do, you know, what does an SDR rep have to do to sort of break free and, and experiment and be creative and take risks when there's so much pressure on them not to take risks. I mean, everything you just said is what we see at the companies we work with, or mm-hmm. even just to, is there's this incredible fear of experimentation and iteration. Because if something seems to be working, to abandon it, even for a moment, could have some massive impact on pipeline or even just the activity levels, mm-hmm. right? We don't, we don't want to rock the boat. But what we often say and what we end up implementing as a process is what we call this manual to scale loop. And the way to think about it is that the creative process happens one off, right? A rep, in theory, if they're told to really think outside the box 
to really look for what information would really let me say something powerful, one-to-one, hyper-relevant. If we actually let reps do that, we can also assure them that there's a process to take that manual effort that took time, that was an experiment that may or may not work. Mm -hmm. But if it does work, we can scale it. So manual to scale loop is this process that we end up implementing in companies where we take what the best reps are doing. It could be creative, it could be crazy, but it's working. And then we find a way to grab that data in probably a different form, get to about, if not the same message, but now we're sending it thousands of rows at a time rather than just once. Mm-hmm. So we think about this as like, how do, you, how do you get people to be creative? You assure them that when it works, we can scale it. And that's so rare for reps to actually feel that they work inside of an organization where if it is working, that the company is going to support them in sending it more quickly, more efficiently. So I get that. I, I like that, obviously. But the thing that springs to mind when you talk about it is that uh, creativity can be fairly unique to an individual. And so, yeah, I am, have to admit, uh, a loud skeptic about this idea that you can necessarily take what works for one person and apply it in a blanket fashion to other people yeah. because yeah, the way people experience me is is completely unique from the way they experience you or anybody else in this world, right? So how do you do that, what you're talking about, this manual to scale in a way that, that in an organization, let's say you have 10 or 20 SDRs, how do you do that in a way that, that keeps it individual and unique for each of the reps. No, I love it. I think what you're, what's springing to mind and what you just said is we have this association with scale as sameness. So this idea of if I was going to take what the best rep did and make it possible to do it at a, for everyone, let's say that we would lose the ability for it to still come from the individual. So one common template that we see begins with like an opening hook. So that's a sentence completely unique to the rep. But what they're going to write, though it's going to be their own, is probably going to come from different signals that they're observing, information that they've had to hunt and fight to find, right? Go through rows and rows of data to say what's going to be interesting to the prospect. So we want to give them time back to write it in their way, Mm -hmm. able to have all that information, the same, you know, different signals and information about the company and the prospect at their disposal so that they can write that sentence significantly faster. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine a sales email kind of having a component that is fully human, personality driven even, that the information that helps drive it is available for everyone. And parts of the template or parts of the message are just actually happening and being composed for them so they can spend more time on that first sentence. So that makes people open an email in the first place. Yeah. So give an example if you could. Yeah. So, um, well, let's do a little role play. I like to improvise. So let's think (laughs) about that we've both read about probably this morning. Any, any B2B technology companies? No, go ahead. I've, I've been, head down working on my new book. So (laughs) we probably shouldn't. um, I've been been offline. (laughs) Yeah. WeWork's probably not responding right now, but I'm thinking of, you know, WeWork as a great example of they say technology company. (laughs) And for me to write a message right now to them that really resonates about my own software that I think can help 
I probably need to be aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. They've got PR scandals. They've got departures and new hires. So you could think about all these executives, all this information that would help me probably write a better opening line, something that actually speaks to what their company is experiencing. Sorry, sorry, and, I'm sorry. Your options are worthless. <laughs> I feel bad. I, you know, I've been reading so much on them. Uh, it might be something a little more nuanced, right? I was a little more empathetic. I know. I was just uh... exactly. Now you hit it on the head. I'm an empathy salesperson, right? I I basically I try to imagine before I go into a meeting that I work for the company I'm selling to already. Mm-hmm. So by reading all that information, you know, at, at Dog Patch, we would find a way to bring in all those signals, all that information about what's happening at WeWork. So me as a rep can actually create that first sentence in a powerful way. It might be simply looking and saying, you know, as first name has recently departed and we know you're facing X, Y, and Z, right? But this is all data that we can get to scale so that I can write the message in my voice as mm-hmm. the rep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. Um, and, well, you know, I was just bring up something back on creativity because I know we're but this is something that the it's a big thing for me is is and again you guys work with with companies you guys dog patch work with companies uh, primarily in the SaaS business you know scaling companies companies that are fairly good size already um, and you talk about how you like sales because of freedom to think outside the box um, but I want to get in talking about coaching and managing more specifically because we just started touching this before is is what do we do at the manager and level to get them to back off, right? To let people experiment. And I, look, I've been in the startup role numerous, numerous times. I understand the pressure from investors and everybody else. But by the same token, when I was growing sales teams, is I wanted to preserve the ability to give people the freedom to, to fail. That's a little bit of a cliche, but give them the freedom to explore. Um, yeah, there are times you want to step in. I wrote about this this week, actually, in one of my one of my posts. Is is how do we really coach that level of of talent to say, yeah, I actually need to be maybe less engaged. Yeah, metrics are important, but the metrics aren't everything because one of the symptoms we're seeing of of this, I think, obsession over metrics and so on is that. We see these huge attrition rates coming through in sales. SDRs stay for a short period of time. Um, you know, there was something on LinkedIn this week uh, where my friend Mike Weinberg had posted some scenario about, you know, if you're talking to a prospect and they're under contract. Uh, should you try to take the meeting? And, you know, there's this huge bifurcation of, uh, of opinion about, yeah, take the meeting, you know, build for the future. And others like, no, you don't waste the time. But when you're operating in an environment where, again, maybe your tenure on the job, is, as it is for most sellers, is less than 18 months, yeah, you can sort of see why a lot of them would say, yeah, I wouldn't invest the time. Um, because, But that attrition is also due in very large part to the pressures that are being put under by, by management. And this perception that, yeah, if somebody doesn't scale up in 90 days, uh, on board in nine days and ramp up, they're out of here. If you're a rep and you're not making quota after six months, you're out. And all those pressures that create these behaviors that become then self-fulfilling and self-perpetuating. So how do we 
right? So how do we work with that that level of manager to say you just need you just need to back off and you gotta you gotta feel comfortable backing off? Yeah, I mean, there's two approaches. One is to encourage a paradigm shift generally on the sales floor that there is time for creativity. So it's like a cultural sort of change management thing, which I think is really hard. Um, Another way is to actually build programmatically into the manager's role, time they spend workshopping or um, working closely with their team to have these sort of creative moments. So ideally, right, reps would just be doing things whenever they'd like, like taking those moments to explore what the next great play could be for them or some new technique to get that first meeting. But I think nine times out of 10, um, you know, what really needs to happen when it comes to encouraging creativity from a manager is it needs to be practiced like habitually. There needs to be managers taking time to try new things. There needs to be celebrations of wins that come from unpredictable or surprising um, approaches from other reps. There just needs to be sort of a, um, I guess it's a sea change in how we operate. I think that most companies now are more interested, and we see this typically in creativity, when they figured out the data challenge, right? When reps aren't spending all their time hunting for prospects, they're more likely to be trying new and innovative things on the phone or an email or in their sales conversation. When they have an identified list of people to go after. Yeah. You know, the way we think about it at Dogpatch is you have this function, which could exist in your org which is called outbound operations, Mm -hmm. centralizes all that management, wrangling, munging, sourcing, cleaning of data, prospect information, company attributes, signals that tell you a company might be ready or you're ready to talk to them. Mm -hmm. So if that is all managed centrally and the reps are actually able to just do the human thing, the calls, reply management, the opening hooks we discussed earlier, yeah, creativity just kind of becomes a no-brainer. You're not spending your time trying to get rows and columns sorted. But there are those functions that exist. I mean, sales ops in a lot of companies. So help people understand the difference between sales operations and outbound operations. Yeah, it's a really good question. Because you can think of sales operations as often individual contributors working to make the CRM or systems either talk better or work a little more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Outbound ops is a statement by the company that actually reps will be out of the business of spending their time in spreadsheets. So we know many companies and we work with them, but they do have sales operations teams or rev ops teams, mm-hmm. but they still ask the rep to do some large amount of this data management, data range. Source, sourcing. So put a, it's often a sourcing. Also, be uploading those contacts into a CRM mm-hmm. or manually reading the rules of engagement and suppression so they know when and when not to reach out to a prospect. All these manual steps that, in theory, feel like sales ops, but reps are still doing uploading into a sequence and uploading into the CRM. Things that traditionally you would hope your ops people have the time for, they may not. And when reps are left to do it, it's kind of that robotic process. And explain for people what you meant by rules of like suppression and so on. Yeah. So let's like think about what a typical reps day looks like. Um, We talked about the importance of creativity. Mm. Most reps are in charge of not only finding their prospects, Mm -hmm. but organizing all the information about those prospects and their company. They're responsible 
sometimes we're prioritizing those individuals or those target accounts. Mm -hmm. And then they're also either supposed to internally decide on or follow a set of rules about when to communicate with that person or company or to not. Right. That might mean investigation the CRM. That might mean there's a Google Doc laying around somewhere that says, hey, you got to wait 90 days after XYZ opt-out before you can send a one-off. Well, why? Who made those <laughs> rules? Who made those rules? Right. And so two points, and I love where you're looking because it's like, one, those rules sometimes feel very arbitrary, and they are. Mm. And two, the more rules you have that actually require a rep to follow but manually how are they expected to actually have the time to write that killer opening hook? You know, we see companies who will invest in all these data providers. They'll build these gorgeous, flexible, and dynamic templates with us, but their reps might not have the time yet to write that first sentence that's going to blow the prospect away, that's going to make them open the email and read the rest of the relevant text. So, you know, we, we deeply believe at Dogpatch that, you know, data is magical and it's important. And then getting the humans back into doing the human stuff, creative writing, creative communication is so core to what makes sales go. And um, to your point, that's not how it feels for most reps today. Yeah, yeah. So sort of just to branch off from that then. So yeah, it's been a repeated theme, both when I spoke with uh, your colleagues, Ben and Kyle, in an earlier episode, and now with yourself is this idea of this blending the data with the human um, and you talk about the importance of that, you know, the hook and, and the creative process. So maybe just to serve a last question before I finish up is, so what does that say about who sales managers should be hiring? I mean, it's, it seems like that if this, especially coming into an SDR roles, we're talking about primarily, but it's not exclusively. It could be, you know, if it's a place where AEs have the responsibility for prospecting as well, but seems like that's a, a different set of skills than are necessarily on the, the chart, certainly the ones I see on job descriptions. That, so what, sh- what should be on there now? How should people be broadening their, their horizons? May hiring managers be broadening their horizons? Yeah, it feels like the, I'm surprised, but it's delightful to think our conversation just came full circle because it is this idea of if the rep that is going to be most successful, and let's actually add another controversial word, which is happy, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to be retained by the organization and they're going to perform well and they're going to feel good in their role. That creativity and that sense of being fully supported by the organization to be creative. And we don't mean it simply in the sense of like trying a bunch of stuff, but being willing to take bold risks in how they write, communicate, and how they find information. Um, Managers should both be looking for that, not a hunter who kills what he eats. They should be looking for someone who writes and expresses um, in a really thoughtful and interesting way. And to support that type of professional, the company actually will have to look at itself again and say, do I really have a sales organization set up for that role? Do I actually have the ability to take a creative presence in the office who's going to try really innovative things and actually scale some of what they do? Do we have the data set up that they could just be really what reps are supposed to be doing, which is communicators? Um, and it's really, really tough. You know, I'd love to yeah. see more doing it. <laughs> but well, I guess I mean, that's why. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a conundrum, for, I think, for even some people that may consider themselves somewhat 
enlightened on the way they perceive the, the type of people that they would hire is, to, you know, because the old stereotypes come into play. Well, if I'm hiring someone that's a creative, are they going to pick up the phone and make calls? Yeah. Right? Are they emotional? Are they emotional or hard to manage because they're creative? Creative doesn't have to mean an artist. It means that they've exhibited time and time again a willingness to experiment and iterate outside of rules. So, and I guarantee if any company looks at their best outbound deals, there's at least one example of something out of the box. I'll never forget being young in sales, 22, coming up with a concept for a ping pong belt for a CEO of a very large technology company. We sent him a ping pong belt, championship belt of pop mm. ping pong, only because I'd had so many conversations with him about the sport. Right. That opened up a deal that was multi-year and multi-million dollar. Mm-hmm. Like that's the type of thinking we need in sales. Right. Yeah, yeah well, that's... You should read um, my friend Stu Hynek's book, Contact Marketing, How to Get a Meeting with Anyone, um, yeah. and, his, and his new book, which I just uh, just recorded another interview with Stu. will be on, be on shortly. Um, yeah, I mean, this, is, this I think, is, is really sort of the, the key point to get back to and to finish up on, is that as much as you get stuck in a process in terms of how you sell, is we also get stuck in processes in terms of how we hire and again, yeah, we sort of gone full circle with this in the conversation. But I, th- I think this is really is really the important thing for managers is you know they feel these conflicting pressures. Is we talk about how successful salespeople, and you just referred to this, and I've referred to it many times, is is successful sellers typically the ones that bend or break the rules. Um, you know, managers, you got to have the same same level of courage is I'm speaking to the managers directly here is that are listening to this is is to try something different um, in terms of the profile of who it is that you're looking at is what do the customers need it's not just what what you need but what do the customers need tactically speaking I know we're we're almost done but the one of the number one recommendations I give when people are writing their rec of their their open rec is to have it sent to 15 different people not in their industry, and ask them what they imagine when they close their eyes, the perfect candidate to look like. If everyone comes back with an elite athlete from a tier one university, (laughs) chances are you haven't quite opened up the language enough to really be open to what the right hire is for you. And it's not to say that tier one or division one athletes uh, can't succeed at sales. They certainly can. No, in fact, the opposite. But that homogenous sort of instant response tells you you might. Yeah, well, I I go the other direction. I say that, or a different direction, let's say, which is, yeah, if you're going to ask anybody, I'd go ask some of your customers and say, this is what we're thinking of hiring. Do these attributes sound like they would add value to you and what you need to accomplish, which in terms of gathering information to make a purchase decision? And, And that, I think, is a high bar because... Believe me, your customer doesn't care one iota whether somebody's a hunter, an extrovert, whether they're aggressive. <laughs> they don't care. It's, what about a go-getter? A uh, go-getter, they just don't care. It's not, not relevant to them. If you say, look, what we're looking for is we're looking for curious, open-minded problem solvers, Ah, then your, your customer will say, yeah, yeah, find people that, that fit that. And you can find those people that will make calls and do what they need to do to become great salespeople. But, you know, they have the attributes up front, including 
I think if they do tend to be curious and open-minded, they're more likely to be creative types, is, yeah, it's, it's a different profile you're looking for. And this is a source of unending frustration to me, and I have it even with clients that I have that yeah, will work together to do a job description, and then they go hire somebody that yeah, looks good and presents well, you know, the sort of the D1 athlete type profile, and it's like, yeah, that's not what we said we were going to do. But people just have a hard time breaking free from that because that seems safe, right? So much of what we talked about today and in general in sales is people want to be safe, right? I want to do things that's safe. And so I know if I hire that that profile, that, that seems safe. Um, There's and, a whole other podcast on that, yeah. you know, culture fit concept, you know, and how startups are so committed to singleness of purpose and it gets conflated with yeah. just singleness of identity mm-hmm. or this person reminds me of people that I hang with, you know, that has nothing to do with really singleness of purpose as a, as a company growing. Yeah. And then you out on all that difference that would make a better product or team. Yeah. Well, we'll come back and we'll have to come back. We'll talk about that too. <laughs> all right. Well, Mercy, it's been great talking with you. So tell folks how they can learn more about dog patch advisors or get in touch with you. Sure. Well, I can be reached at mercy at dogpatchadvisors.com. That same site is where Dogpatch lives. And we encourage everyone to check out our blog. We write on just about everything outbound and outbound operations, um, particularly next generation playbooks. Excellent. All right. Well, Mercy, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Mercy Bell. Join me again next week as my guest will be Chad Sanderson. Chad's a managing partner at Value Selling Associates. And we're going to be talking about what Chad calls the sales singularity, which is the combination of sales tech tools and human relationships to optimize the best elements of both in your sales process. After all, technology needs to amplify the human element in sales, not replace it, which, as many of you know, is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So you'll definitely want to check this out. So make sure you join us next week. Uh, Before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House. Success in sales and in life is all about human connections, selling to humans, selling yourself to humans. And The Sales House is my online training platform for B2B sellers just like you who really want to learn what it takes to successfully sell to another human being. So for more information, visit thesaleshouse.com. That is thesaleshouse.com. I look forward to seeing you there. So thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>